Welcome to Resistance Roundtable, broadcast on WPKN, the second Saturday of each month, where we engage in conversation about local and nationwide organizing for a more just and democratic America during this pivotal and dangerous moment in our nation's history. Hosting today's show is Ruth Ann Baumgartner, who is a longtime instructor in literature and writing at Central Connecticut State University, a member of the Executive Committee of the Connecticut Conference of the American Association of University Professors. Ruth also serves as a member of the Board of Directors and a theatrical director with the Westport Community Theater. Ruth Ann is here again this week in the studio with us. Glad you're here again, Ruth Ann. So am I. Joining us by phone today from the city of Las Palmas in the Canary Islands is Richard Hill, host of WPKN Show's First Tuesday Rainy Day Radio and Organic Farm Stand. And uh, Richard is also a rotating host of the program, Mike Check. Richard is a musician, teacher, and mentor with Ruth uh, Youth Radio Connecticut. Richard, are you there? We can hear you from the Canary Islands. Yes. I hope the connection is good. That's a little spotty, but you know you're so far away, so it's it's, it's <laughs> no, understandable. Know, I, I can uh, I don't know which is better the uh, the regular transmission or the um, the, sa- uh, the satellite phone that you've got. <laughs> right, uh, right, all right. Well, uh, if you can hear me, that's that's good enough. All right, I'm Scott Harris, host of WPK's weekly public affairs program Counterpoint that airs Monday evenings an executive producer of Between the Lines Radio News Magazine, which both Ruth Ann and Richard are contributors. Today, we're very happy. We're going to be joined by Henry Lowendorf, co-chair of the Greater New Haven Peace Council. We'll be discussing two important issues together. Uh, the opening hearing of the House Committee investigating the January 6th Capitol insurrection, Donald Trump's attempt to overturn the 2020 presidential election, And we'll also be talking about the mobilization of hundreds of thousands of people across the U.S. today who are demanding Congress pass legislation, strengthening laws regulating guns in the aftermath of the tens of thousands of deaths every year in this country to gun violence, including, of course, dozens of mass shootings that we've had uh, over recent weeks and uh, most infamously the latest vile massacres in both Buffalo, New York and Uvalde, Texas. Well, Henry, um, we're very happy you're here uh, today to join us. Thank you, Scott. Uh, I'm very pleased to be here, and uh, I know you and Richard. I'm pleased to meet Ruth Ann. Excellent, excellent. Well, let me just introduce you to our audience. For those who don't know, Henry is co-chair of the Greater New Haven Peace Council and a longtime activist working for peace and justice. And uh, uh, we're glad you're here for this conversation and Henry, um, I, I want to get your initial reaction. I, I know we'll all uh, we'll all give our two cents as well. But in the opening public hearing of the House Committee investigating the January six deadly insurrection, we had Republican Representative Liz Cheney of Wyoming, who's vice chair of the committee. She laid out what she described as Trump's seven part plan to overturn the twenty twenty presidential election. And after following the first of what may be a total of eight hearings, what's your view of the strengths and weaknesses of this process so far and its potential for educating the public who may not already believe and understand that Donald Trump and the Republican Party constitute a grave and existential threat to America's democratic system? 
as deeply flawed as it is. And more importantly, I wanted to get your take on uh, how this process could ensure that Donald Trump and the others responsible for this failed coup attempt are held accountable for their crimes. That's a pretty um, expansive question. (laughs) Well, give it a shot. Give it a shot. We can take it in pieces. From my personal point of view is that for those of us who understood that Trump was doing everything he could in his crude way to stay the president of the United States despite his election loss, that the revelations will be pretty much expected. It's not like all this information, most of this information has been out there. So we, we understand that. And so this, I think this effort is intended to pave the way for legal action against Trump and the people, or some of the people anyway, who supported him. And that now includes a large part of what's left of the Republican Party. That's the scary thing. But I, I also think that Trump is, is, is the, he's, he's sort of the, the target. He's in the bullseye, but he's not alone. The uh, riot that took place in the Capitol in 2021, January 6th, was orchestrated by a lot of different players. There were these neo-Nazi groups like the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers. There were billionaire oligarchs who funded a lot of this. So Trump wasn't alone. And uh, now we see that there that, that there's there's a, a, a large majority, I would say, of the uh, Democrat, the Republican leadership that that um, is backing Trump. One of the scary things is that as part of the effort to destroy what what democracy we have is the denial of facts, the denial of science, and the projection of completely false narratives of what has happened. And there's no shame. They they have no shame in, in projecting this. Part of what's scary is that while this effort i mean you mentioned liz cheney and and she's taken on the the republican establishment at this point which is which is good but this whole thing is is clearly being led by the democratic party and when it comes to denial of facts and challenging or even helping to corrupt the democratic process the democrats play a role so I think it's it's really important not to focus 100% of our attention on Trump and the Republican Party, but to realize that the leadership of the Democratic Party is also responsible for these events that are going on. Let me stop with that. All right. Well, thank you, Henry. Uh, Ruth Ann or Richard, do you have a comment um, or uh, just a way to continue this conversation on this really important topic of where this committee is going and uh, the direction of our democracy. Well, hearing uh, hearing nothing from Richard, I, I I was very impressed by Liz Cheney because I wasn't expecting much uh, from her. But um, 
I'm afraid that I was so impressed by her that I began to think she might not be the only the only one the only Republican interested in uh, some kind of justice or in, interested in our democratic processes at least and uh, I don't I don't want to invite that kind of complacency. Uh, I, Lawrence O'Donnell quoted George Orwell, and I thought it was very apropos uh, to see what is in front of our very eyes or our, our, our nose is a constant struggle. And I think that watching the hearings is going to be that too. What's actually in front of our nose, what we wish were in front of our nose, uh, what ought to be in front of our nose, and uh, whether we're seeing reality or interpreting interpreting it, because any loopholes I know from uh, uh, from being in various kinds of contentious meetings, if, if, you, if you slip up once, your whole side is destroyed uh, by the opposition. I would hate to, to have that happen. I was impressed with the with the first nine, very much impressed. Hey, Richard, what, what are you thinking about with this? Yeah, well, I just want to mention that uh, apparently this first hearing was widely viewed. Uh, the Nielsen report is that the 20 million people saw it which puts it up there with the super bowl and other uh, extremely uh, attractive uh, media events so that's interesting and to me uh, here's a little theatrical complaint uh, or critique of the hearing i thought that the you know having seen the watergate hearings i think the thing that made those so compelling was the fact that there was a quality of spontaneity about the way they did it. And that was largely lacking in the first hearing where the, much of it was scripted. And even the interviewing of the two, well, actually just the one police woman who reported on, on what happened to her, I felt like the, the questions that were being asked were also scripted. On the other hand, I was extremely impressed with Liz Cheney's prosecutorial approach mm -hmm. and the fact that she covered from soup to nuts all the uh, egregious facts in the matter. And that that was very, very compelling, very helpful. Uh, had no problem with her <laughs> reading from the teleprompter for that. But there's got to be a quality for me, from my point of view, to make this more than just a kind of Democratic Party function. There's got to be a quality that uh, of, of sort of give and take and, and spontaneity. I mean, that that's my personal recommendation yeah. to the committee. Yeah, certainly agree with your your observation there, Henry. What's what's your uh, reaction to what uh, Ruth Ann and, and Richard put put out there? Well, it's this break in the Republican leadership represented by Liz Cheney is important. We have to recognize that she's not lib she's not a liberal at all. And she has resisted the, the appeal and and bullying that, that Trump represents. So that's a good sign. I think that in in terms of the in terms of the question of whether they're more than Liz Cheney who are would take this position that clearly not too many Republicans are speaking out uh, in the same way that she is. And I think that what that represents is the that there's a split in the Republican Party and in, in the uh, billionaires that uh, oversee the direction of the Republican Party. There's some who don't see Trump as the hero that he presents himself as. And 
are would rather have some other extreme right wing leader than Trump for various reasons. I think that's something that needs to be explored and we need to educate ourselves about. It needs to be that split needs to be widened. I would say that there's a similar split in the Democratic Party between the corporate Democrats and the more progressive minority Democrat, minority of, of Democratic leadership. One has to find ways of promoting the more progressive and the ones that are more likely to stand up against this uh, fascist danger that Trump represents. You're listening to Resistance Roundtable, and our guest on today's program is Henry Lowendorf. He's co-chair of the Greater New Haven Peace Council. And I'm here, Scott Harris, with uh, Ruth Ann Baumgartner and Richard Hill, uh, regular co-hosts of the show. And I just wanted to put out some of my feelings here, and that was the two most important things to me about these hearings, or, or the end goal would be accountability, the arrest and prosecution of those involved, Trump and his inner circle, and also putting together uh, laws that will prevent uh, you know, fixing the loopholes, and the crazy electoral college system we have that permitted a lot of th- this plot to go forward and may again if it's not fixed. But um, the, the most frightening image I have of this hearing is the fact that I think it was one commentator I saw talking about the hearing said, whoa, uh, we should have, uh, you know, we're, we're hoping that Attorney General Merrick Garland is uh, watching this and taking notes. What the hell? I mean, what kind of feckless and insane, incompetent uh, Justice Department do we have? It's been it's been a year and a half since this coup, this attempted coup took place. There's been no prosecution that we're aware of. There's no if there's a grand jury where it's 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 secret, which may be going on. I'm just I am scared as hell that we are going to have a failed government that's going to lead to a, a fascist coup down the road if we do not hold these folks accountable. Uh, it just seems obvious to me that if Merrick Garland doesn't act, we are going to get a lot more of the same and even worse. Henry, what, what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think that's a very important, uh, it's a, it's a very important um, understanding that you just presented. Here's Garland, who's who was uh, proposed for the Supreme Court by Barack Obama and the Republicans under Mitch McConnell refused even to have a hearing on his uh, on that appointment. Uh, here's Garland and the Justice Department holding back when you're right. The, the people who plotted this coup and the underlying tools that they used are very powerful and we should be frightened. The whole issue of electoral fraud, which is brought up by the Trump people, which is basically a lie. As complex as our voting system around the country is, the voting itself is fairly secure. What's not secure is the suppression of votes and voters, which is going on all across the country right now. And so this hearing and the whole issue around the the riots of January 26th and who's accountable, that's just that's one piece of the puzzle. A, a, a huge piece of the puzzle is the denial of the right to vote for millions and millions of people, which is focused on certain groups that 
tend to be more progressive and more oppressed and won't vote for, are less likely to vote Republican. So the Republicans are doing everything they can to suppress the vote. That becomes a major question. How is that being dealt with? Certainly there are grassroots groups, trade unions and, and social justice organizations that are trying to reverse that. But what kind of action is the Democratic Party been taking? And this isn't like this, this, this suppression of the vote is, is new. This has been going on for many years. And very little, as far as I can tell, mm-hmm. has taken place. So your criticism of the Justice Department, I think, is correct. And, and again, it's a Democratic Party Justice Department, at least that the leadership is. So I, I think this is, this is a really critical, critical point that you raise. Could I comment on that? Please, please. Yeah, I... Uh... I think that's valid, extremely valid, Henry. I mean, as you say, it's been going on for years. It is, I think, becoming more extreme, the the suppression of voters and all the techniques that are used to do that are now being ratcheted up at the state level. What your presentation that you just stated makes me realize that there's a kind of a, a pincer movement that's happening. The voter suppression is happening at the state level. They're appointing secretaries of state who could literally overturn the election results if they don't go according to plan. And by the way, most of those secretaries of state who are running in uh, Republican-dominated states, they're uh, big lie supporters. They believe in the big lie. So in other words, they believe that Donald Trump is really the president. That's one phalanx or one push that's happening. On the other side, you have Trump himself, who is continuing to pump out his garbage and could wind up being the candidate for the Republican Party. And then the third thing is you have the fascist militias who are posing a huge threat to public safety and could be brought to bear during the election to intimidate voters and do other anti-democratic actions. So put all that together and you have the machinery to really crush democracy and to push us into a fascist status. Ruthann, did you want to uh, comment? Well, I I think uh, when I was raised by Republicans, uh, but they were, you know, Eisenhower Republicans, so it's you can get away with that, I think. Um, Practically socialist. Yeah, yeah, now they look like that. But uh, they they were sure, and they were probably right, I don't know, that there were a lot of scoundrels in the Democratic Party. And my mother used to say, when I would criticize things, she'd say, now, to the pure, all things are pure. Do not venture into the slough of whatever. Uh, And I think that's a weakness. To the pure, it's true. To the pure, all things are pure. If you are yourself a kind of trusting person and and a person who is relatively virtuous, you don't automatically expect that you're surrounded by uh, thieves and, and killers. But uh, the Republican Party doesn't seem to have that problem anymore. Maybe we need uh, more crooks in the, in the Democratic organization. We just seem to be gobsmacked by so many things. We weren't ready for Trump to say he wasn't going to extend the um, census until everybody had responded. We weren't really ready for that. It's so dishonest. It's so... Uh, secretly evil. We weren't ready for a lot of the maneuverings that Mitch McConnell has taken to keep the Republicans in 
power and an influence whether they have a majority or not. Hmm. So I don't, I don't really want to advocate that we try to find us some, some schemers more effective at the dirty side of life. But I, I think that maybe that's what we need is a couple of people who really know how to fight dirty. I wanted to uh, put forward uh, just a thought and get all your reactions to this. And, and I think both um, Ruthann, Richard, and Henry laid out the threats to our democracy. And as you said, all the machinery, Richard, was, is, is, is in place to really upend future elections mm-hmm. and maintain this minority government, which in end, you know, is what the Republicans certainly want to put in place. So, so my idea has been we have a lot of organizations in this country in silos, separately working in their little areas, whether it's gun control or uh, opposing the censoring of history in schools or attacking the suppression of the vote and people who are very on top of what's going on in terms of uh, holding those accountable or participated in the coup attempt. All these things seem to be operating separately in the country. And I think if we look at history... Uh, we really do need like a big tent, anti-fascist popular front <clears throat> that includes people like Liz Cheney and the, the, uh, the, the Republicans who've come out to oppose Cheney, everybody, a big tent and work together to oppose this Republican project to destroy what's left of our democracy. And we need, a, you know, a state by state rapid response network to respond to these thugs who come to school board meetings and try to censor history or burn books. It seems like the forces that could organize themselves to oppose what's going on are doing absolutely nothing to coordinate what needs to be done to save uh, American democracy and, and move past where we have been. But I wanted to get your thoughts on that. And maybe I could turn to you first, Henry. Scott, I think that we have to we have to take a, a view from maybe ten thousand feet. I made a list just for my own benefit of the crises that we face in the United States that are not being dealt with, because the response to all these crises is that people are looking for solutions and they're not forthcoming. So I'm just going to run through some of these crises that we face right now. Infant formula missing on the shelf. Mass domestic killings, no action. Police killings of the peop- of people of color. Institutional racism, the public health and the health disaster of the pandemic. Supply chain problems. This massive inflation that we haven't seen in four years. Housing and homelessness, student debt the impoverishment of our public education system, the efforts to actually destroy the uh, post office, women's health and abortion rights, sexual assault, the gender war, the military wars and the militarization of our society, the demonization of other countries' leaders and government as a means to generate war, the destruction of the climate, this insurrection that we're talking about, the immigration crisis, the wealth gap, wage stagnation, the lack of universal health care, the censorship of dissidents, and of course the distrust of government and much of corporate America. And that's a huge list. One crisis after another that is not being addressed. And it's not being addressed by 
either party. I know that the, the Democrats are trying to do some things here and there. One thing I read recently that we'll probably talk about later in the program is that the Democrats had an opportunity to extend a law limiting assault weapon bail in 2004, and they refused to do it. So where are these gun control advocates when we needed them? Where are the gun control advocates when it comes to selling and using guns abroad and killing children and people of color all over the world? We have these crises, and if we don't begin to resolve these crises, there's a mass uprising that's going to take place. And where it leads is anybody's guess right now. It could lead to fascism or it could lead to a real revolution. But right now, the course of history in the United States is that what we're facing, I think, mostly is the move toward fascism. And the Republicans and under Trump are leading that effort. This is you, when you said that we are in a very scary moment. I think this is absolutely true. I agree with Richard's point. Well, maybe it was your point. I'm not sure that there isn't a there isn't a big tent. There isn't a breaking down of the silos in a way that we can understand the issues that that different groups are fighting for and support them in some way. And that coming together needs to take place. And how to do that is is a whole whole question in and of itself. Right. Richard and uh, Ruth Ann, uh, any comments? I know we wanted to move to the issue of firearms and uh, the gatherings all over the country today uh, advocating for stronger gun regulation. But on this topic, any any comments that you would like to make, Ruth Ann or Richard? Uh, go ahead, Ruth Ann. No, uh, you go um, ahead. I'm uh, looking for a, think something around um, Yeah, I was gathering my thoughts as well. <laughs> but one thing I would like to say about Scott's point about trying to create a, a broad-based anti-fascist popular front, there is a march in Washington next weekend, if I'm not mistaken, on June 18th, which is led by Reverend Barber, the leader of the Poor People's Campaign. And this is a march that is a, an attempt to bring together many parts of the social justice movement on many fronts, the environmentalists, Black Lives Matter, so many different pieces of the puzzle that are fighting for a better country and, and more justice in the country, economic justice, etc. So this is happening next weekend on June 18th. This is sort of, I think, a model for the type of movement that Scott was talking about. And also, I think one of the aspects of this is for a quote-unquote moral revival. And I think that that term, moral revival, is something that encompasses you know, you have a Republican Party, which is not just embraced the big lie, but has embraced the notion that lying is a legitimate political tactic and that they will do it shamelessly hmm. and with complete abandon to further their political aims. So, you know, that's immoral. <laughs> you know, I, I think everybody can agree. And so the notion that somebody like Liz Cheney, as Scott said, could be a part of such a movement, I think that the moral revival aspect of what William Barber is putting out opens the door to people at all political levels and in all political corners. The other thing I wanted to mention is that Labor is recently had a 
forum webinar, the basic uh, title was Expanding Labor's Power and its connection to all these different movements. And labor has traditionally not been particularly diverse in terms of, in terms of the issues as it addresses. It's, it's, it's basically traditionally has focused on the terms and conditions of workers in their workplaces. But this webinar was giving examples for uh, locals from around the country, spokespersons who were talking about, you know, the different issues they are trying to get their membership to address. And it was the full range, the full spectrum of issues that we've been talking about today. So that's, I think, another extremely important part of the Big Tent is to get labor involved in promoting and as they struggle for increase their membership and also to expand unionization in different sectors to include these issues in there. And I'm wondering what Henry thinks about that. Well, I'm very pleased that you raised the issue of the Poor People's Campaign and the assembly that's taking place a week from today. You're you're absolutely right. And it does. It is a big tent. From my perspective, which is a peace perspective, the Poor People's Campaign is doing something that goes against the bipartisan consensus of constantly building up the military in this country and militarize not only the Pentagon, but militarizing the whole country. And that is it calls for a $350 billion cut in the military budget. Right now, that seems kind of a fantasy, given that the both parties, there's a bipartisan consensus that just keeps on increasing the military budget and arms for uh, our military and arms for uh, Ukraine and other countries. But that Poor People's Campaign is, I think it's, 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 it's a bright light in what is, as you point out, an otherwise difficult landscape of organizations not working together in, from, from different social justice perspectives. Let me just say that the, the, there are buses going from New Haven to, uh, no, I should say Connecticut, Hartford, New Haven, to the Poor People's Campaign next, uh, next Saturday. And people should, if you can, try to get there and participate. It's, this is the first big demonstration in recent memory that brings up so many different issues. In fact, it's the first national demonstration, perhaps since the the Women's March, right after Trump got elected. There are huge demonstrations in other countries against the cost of bread or the, the inflation in, in gas prices and so forth. But in this country, there's silence. So the, the Poor People's Campaign is doing something which is desperately needed. And so, Scott, that was, I mean, Richard, that was really very important to bring up. We have... Uh... 15 or so minutes uh, left in our program, and I wanted to make sure to have a, leave room for some discussion of uh, the hundreds of thousands of people gathered that are working to strengthen our gun laws. And there are many obvious links between the violence we've been talking about, uh, the right-wing extremists, the militia groups that participated in the January 6th failed coup, and let's just call them fascist, white supremacists embraced by the Republican Party. And, of course, the rising epidemic of gun violence we've seen across the country over many decades, there's a unique culture of violence in America and a warped veneration or worship of guns in our country. I wanted to turn to you, Ruth, as we we have some time left to talk about this, uh, the things you've been thinking about regarding the issue of gun violence 
and the widely supported and urgent public demand today nationwide for strengthening federal laws governing the buying and selling of firearms. Well, I, I should be saying sophisticated uh, things right now, but foremost on my mind is that yesterday morning I had a second grandniece born, and she's now the younger sister of a three-and-a-half-year-old grandniece who is loving preschool, excited about learning, eager to get to real school, um, curious about everything, and open to experience, open to any people she meets. Um, She doesn't restrict her friendliness to any particular subgroup. And uh, I can see some of myself in that because that's how I experienced school. It had nothing to do with guns. It had nothing to do with locking the rooms or having police in the in the playgrounds or anything. Um, and I don't see how we can end the gun worship and the gun power in this country if we continue to accommodate them in any in any particular way. There's there's one law that. Uh, Lawrence O'Donnell has advocated. I think Chris Murphy is uh, behind it as well. And in our household, it's also been mentioned independently. Um, and that is uh, making, it a, making it a very expensive crime to use weapons that were developed with, mili- with military funds to sell, manufacture and sell military-style weapons to the general public. Uh, the only way to really have any impact, I think, on the gun craze in America is to hit the gun manufacturers because they are cheering, if not bankrolling, every uh, every aspect of our culture that glorifies guns and sees guns as a solution or sees guns as a part of being a man or being independent or being safe. It's not going to happen by people turning their guns into plowshares, I'm sure. Uh, it's going to have to come by some sort of legislation, but do you think there's any hope for any kind of legislation? I think this new, this uh, proposal about go- going after gun manufacturers is a, is a promising, if if not impossible, uh, route. The lawsuit that was launched by the, fa- the uh, Sandy Hook right. uh, victims' families uh, really broke through that with the Remington Arms lawsuit. They, exactly. I believe they got $73 million dollars and the company went bankrupt, but right. And so the idea is to extend that across all gun manufacturers. Yeah, and they've been immunized by Congress. That has to change. Yes, the gun manufacturers have been immunized. Um, but Henry, what are your thoughts on the gun crisis and uh, the action we see people taking today? There are several major issues here. One is the falsification of history that generates a resistance to any laws that restrict the use of guns or prevent people from getting guns, or uh, even challenging the criticism of a gun culture. And the Second Amendment is, uh, the use of the Second Amendment is one of those falsifications. Mm -hmm. One looks at history, and even the Second Amendment itself, which says that uh, militias, in order to have militias that protect, well, in this case, was the militias were intended to retrieve slaves, citizens could have guns. The Second Amendment doesn't say you can have an assault rifle. It doesn't say you can have a gun outside of the militia. And uh, I'm not supporting the militias either, but I'm pointing out that the gun lobby, which has 
Ruthann said it's, it correctly is, is these are big weapons manufacturers and they're profit making and their profits are in selling guns and they lobby Congress and they I would say by politicians to prevent laws that restrict their profits that's part of how uh, lobbying works that's part of how wealthy capitalists work in this country it's not going to be easy but I also don't think that that we can't address the domestic use of guns without also addressing the use of guns and bombs and drones and other weapons abroad. In his powerful speech in 1967 at the Riverside Church in New York, Martin Luther King spoke about meeting with young African-American youth in urban ghettos. And he pointed out what they said to him, which is, how do you expect, and this, this obviously isn't the mass killings. It's not about the mass killings at Uvalde or, or Newtown or in Buffalo and so forth. It's not about that. It's about gun violence in urban, in urban communities. We see this in Connecticut very much. He said that they pointed out that how do you expect us to deal with the conflicts we have nonviolently, when our government is the greatest purveyor of violence in the world. And he said he, he realized he couldn't. And as a civil rights leader, he took a stand at that point, a uh, public stand against the U.S. war on Vietnam. And he was excoriated for doing that because in 1967, remember that Lyndon Johnson, Democratic Party president, was leading this war. The Democrats were leading this war. They weren't the only ones, of course, but they were leading it. And the establishment papers like the Washington Post and the New York Times and even some of his civil rights allies, they castigated him for speaking out against that kind of violence. But he brought those two things together, the violence abroad and the violence at home. You all know that there's this program where excess military equipment that the Pentagon doesn't want and the, the weapons manufacturers want to replace because it's very profitable, that, those, that military equipment gets sold or given to our police departments. Mm. Just recently, West Haven was going to obtain this incredibly militarized, mine-resistant vehicle, and it was blocked because there's a law in Connecticut, a recent law, that said you, you can't, we, we won't allow our police to become militarized. But that's going on. A colleague in Hand had pointed out that, that Hamden and maybe it was Ansoni, I don't remember, jointly owned a tank. <laughs> These are the reverberations of promoting military, promoting violence as a means to an end. If you promote violence against Iraqis and Libyans and Ukrainians and Syrians and so forth and so on, if you promote it abroad, it's going to echo back at home. So I really think that, that if we don't make that connection, then we're fighting a battle that is, is very difficult to win because these weapons manufacturers have the money and they have the lobbying power and the, the power to diselect or prevent the election of people who want to protect our kids and our communities from this kind of gun violence. And they've done that so far 
it seems to me that we have to we have to start with a different approach. Well said. I mean, linking those two major issues together is critically important, and you know, not not really well discussed since the days of Martin Luther King. You know, I just wanted to throw out uh, one stunning poll statistic. There was a recent CBS News poll, and this poll on gun violence found that 44% of Republicans said that mass shootings are something we have to accept as part of a free society. If, if that's at all accurate in terms of reflecting the public opinion of people who call themselves Republicans, that's stunning and extremely depressing. 44% of Republicans think it's okay. Just continue with what we're doing here. Let the gun manufacturers enrich themselves. Let the NRA, NRA do what they're doing, and everything's just copacetic. It's shocking to think that many people in this country think mass shooting incidents at schools and supermarkets and movie theaters are acceptable part of our lives. I wanted to comment on, on Henry's point and, and also what Scott just said, which is that I don't know if you remember the, the movie Bowling for Columbine, mm-hmm. and we talked about the horror of that massacre. But he, at one point in the movie, he pointed out that there was a huge weapons manufacturer within a stone's throw of Columbine High School, creating weapons of mass destruction, missiles, bombs, it might have even been nuclear weapons. He juxtaposed the the national obsession with and program to create these weapons and to use them to intimidate, really, and, and to force the hand of recalcitrant countries around the world to do America's will. And so I guess he was kind of saying, kind of what Henry was saying, this is our culture. Our culture is to, to create and use weapons. And I think that young people perceive this and want to get into the, into the action. They want, they want to be part of it. And so pretty hard to tell young people, oh, you shouldn't use guns when our government is creating these unbelievably horrible weapons, a a defense budget of $700 billion, and then not just creating them, but using them and distributing them, like in Ukraine. What was the last outlay? $40 billion in weapons going to Ukraine to keep that war going? I mean, it's pretty difficult to separate the two things. Well, we're almost out of time, and I would uh, have you maybe say a very short final word here, Henry, as we leave these two important discussions. Great. So uh, I think think the most important point I would make is that the move toward fascism in this country and the support for the militarization of the country. And as as, um, Richard pointed out, the culture of violence, because those are linked. They're absolutely linked. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, Henry Lowendorf, co-chair of the Greater New Haven Peace Council and longtime activist working for peace and justice here in the U.S. and around the world. And thank you, Ruth Ann Baumgartner and Richard Hill, joining me, Scott Harris, for this edition of Resistance Roundtable. Uh, We'll be back next month. Second Saturday is when we're here on the air at 10 a.m. And that would be July 9th next month. Thank you all. And thanks again, Henry, for making time to be with us for this conversation. Thank you.